We are in Ezekiel 44. We will cover the whole chapter here tonight. Last time we were looking at 43, the laws concerning the eighth day and the leper. We want to make sure that we don't treat people as lepers who have not gone through the checklist. wonder if you had any time this week to, to think on that. Sometimes we fall into treating people in an outcast kind of way, but we have not gone through a full checklist. That's why the Word of God was so thorough with that. If you're going to put somebody in that category of being unclean, make sure you go through all the all the process. But here in 44, we leave leave those things. And we pick up verse 1. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it. Because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. Now the eastern gate, we have a couple of pictures here to, to show you some things about it. And I didn't put them up on Facebook. I just thought of it now. I meant to uh, at least email them out to everybody. But I didn't do either one. So hopefully you can get a, a view. If not, just do a Google search while you're there at home for the east gate of Jerusalem. And you will come up with some similar pictures. But this is what it looks like from a distance. This is the old city, Jerusalem, the city of David, as it's called. And that is the east gate. The old city, Jerusalem, has eight gates to it. This is one of them. This one is sealed up. Let's go on to our second picture. This one gets a little bit closer. And you can see in the front of it is a cemetery. Now, if you're thinking that's probably wasn't originally built there, you are correct. The Muslims built the cemetery there to keep Messiah from coming through. Since he is going to be a rabbi, he can't touch dead things. And so they decided to bury dead people there in front of the gate. And they also sealed it. Now, a lot of people treat this gate very holy. There's a lot of uh, importance that is put on this. And pretty much everything is false. This gate has absolutely nothing to do with the end times. This gate has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. This gate was not even built in Jesus' day. This gate is not built until, I think, I, uh, 7th century, I believe it was. So about 600 plus years after Jesus, this gate was built. It was sealed up around 1530. And it was sealed up because uh, the, the Muslims wanted to make sure that the Messiah could not enter into Jerusalem and thereby establish his kingship. So they sealed it. So obviously they don't, they don't believe that Messiah is God, at least not the Messiah of the Jewish people. Now, I'll try and pronounce his name best I can. I believe it is Suleiman the Great. He's the one who who blocked the gate. Now, this is this was uh, blocked in 1530, and it has not been opened since then. There's still a, a vestibule, as the Word of God put it here, in the gate. And there are still Muslims that gather in the vestibule to pray. But you just have to go in one way, and you have to come out the same way. You can't go through the gate anymore because the gate is blocked. Now, the eastern gate is very commonly called the Golden Gate. 
More people know this as the Golden Gate than the Eastern Gate. In Hebrew, it is called Sha'ar Harachman, or the Gate of Mercy. It is also called the Sushan Gate. It's named after the Sushan, after Sushan, the uh, Persian capital, signify the appreciation to the Persians for allowing them to rebuild the temple in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. But, of course, that is named that way under false supposition because this gate was not built by Ezra and Nehemiah. This gate was built again in the 7th century. Now, most of the other gates of the old city date to the Turkish period. This gate predates these and it dates to the 7th century A.D. So it's an old gate, but it's not as old as Jesus' uh, time here on the earth. There's Hebrew writing on the internal walls of the gate's chamber is believed to have been left by Jewish pilgrims of at least a thousand years ago. There's a dramatic story that was told by Jim Fleming, probably not someone that you ever heard of. The author who wrote the story down tells it this way. Someone I lived with in Jerusalem in June 1982 for one month, speaking of Jim Fleming, who discovered an archway of a gate below the present-day eastern gate of the old city. This is the present-day gate of the old city. Falling through the rain-soaked ground in 1969 while walking along the eastern gate, Dr. Fleming fell into a modern Arab tomb. He found himself in a pit of bones looking at the top of another gate eight feet beneath the surface. The story was retold in the January-February 1982 Biblical Archaeology Review. If anybody wants to look that up. January-February edition 1982 Biblical Archaeological Review. He stumbled into the large tomb in front of the left portal of the Golden Gate. At the bottom of the tomb on the face of the wall, he observed wedge-shaped stones indicating the top of an arch. In the drawing above, the stones he actually saw are drawn in solid lines inside the tomb. If the partial arch he saw is in fact complete, it forms an arched gateway exactly under the left portal of the Golden Gate. Presumably, a similar arched portal is under the right portal of the Golden Gate, thus forming a double portal of the lower gate. Now, if we bring up our, our next two pictures, this is the first one. I didn't bring my little pointer up here, but you can see that directly under the, the visible gate is the, uh, is the older gate. Thank you, Keith. So this would be the area that is underground. The cemetery is up over here, and our guy fell down and landed around in this area. And he saw these archways that were there. This would be the wall that existed for this particular gate. This wall was built for this gate. This wall is using different masonry techniques than is this wall. These are older masonry techniques. Now, it was some time later, this is called Warren's Wall, that an archaeologist by the name of Warren, had gone down and he had found that there was a wall that seemed to curve back towards the old eastern gate. But um, he was prevented from being able to go much further to discover more of the wall before there was a, a land collapse and he was not able to complete any more than this, but was able to, to determine that much of it there. So, the go on to our second picture. This is the place where he would have fallen into. These are the bones he would have seen. 
from the cemetery that is there, that is the arch that is coming up over there of the gate, the eastern gate that predates the visible one. So the, this is probably the one that Jesus came through during the uh, Palm Sunday entry. This, uh, he came in through the east gate. This is probably the gate that he had come through. He did not come through the one that you see. That was not even, not even built at that time. Now, some date this particular archway right here to the first century A.D. Others date it all the way back to Nehemiah's fifth century B.C. Uh, I don't know which one to tell you that it, that it is, whether Herod built this or whether, because Herod was building all kinds of stuff. Maybe he built this one too, but it's also possible to go back to Nehemiah's wall. If this isn't Nehemiah's wall, I don't know where Nehemiah's wall was because obviously that was in there somewhere. What happens with these cities, and especially a city as old as Jerusalem, is that every time it was conquered and destroyed, then the rubble from those old cities would settle in and they would build on top of it. So um, I had spent a little bit of time looking at some of the videos. If you want to go up on YouTube, you can take a look at these. But the uh, what, is, what is the pathway that Jesus took for the cross, the Via Della Rosa? Yeah, the... Uh, that is not the path that Jesus walked. Uh, it may not even be the right direction that he walked. There's uh, two possible paths that he walked, but the city that existed and the path that he would have walked do not exist anymore. So what you have is stuff that was done probably at the time that this, this wall was uh, built and this gate was built or maybe before that or after it. But if you want to go up on YouTube, you can look at, uh, there is a uh, uh, area underneath the, of the path that they say, you know, all the tourists go to and they walk along those way. There's a path under, underneath that. So they have excavated it, put up supports. It's not the easiest to get to. And in one video I saw, he told how he got to it. Um, when he was down there, he was all by himself, except for the, the guy that he had. Uh, really interesting to look at. He said it is very possible that those are the ones that go all the way back to, to Jesus' day. But it's also possible that the ones from Jesus' day are underneath that. <laughs> so, not exactly sure which it would be, but it is pretty sure that the ones that are there now are definitely not the ones that Jesus was walking on. So, if you ever make it over to Jerusalem and decide to go down, walking down the uh, path, just to know, uh, it's probably not where Jesus walked. In fact, it may even be completely the wrong path. Because, uh, you know, if you rebuild a city, the likelihood of following the exact same roads is, is not uh, too, too great. And there's two very different pathways they have. One goes through the Lion's Gate. And another goes through, um, oh, I forget the name of the other gate that they had taken. That's more on, along the outside of the city. We have one more picture. We'll get to that here in just a minute. Now the east gate, the east gate spoken of here in the book of Ezekiel, which is what caused the um, uh, Suleiman to block the thing up to begin to begin with, was this prophecy from Ezekiel that says the Messiah is coming through this gate. Now here's the problem with that: they obviously don't read scripture very well. 
because the eastern gate in Ezekiel's prophecy is the eastern gate of the temple. This is the eastern gate of the city. There is nothing prophesied about the eastern gate of the city. It is possible that the temple exists outside of the city. And we showed you some of the things that are involved with that. It is also possible that it is inside the city. But whichever way it is, the gate that is spoken about in Ezekiel is the eastern gate of the temple. It has nothing to do with the eastern gate of the city, but this is the one that we blocked up, the eastern gate of the city. So they did a whole lot of work for nothing. In Ezekiel 43, verses 1 and 2, Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. This is the gate in question here. This is back in 43. And behold, the glory of God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. When he starts this prophecy, here in the, he's already been in it for a little bit, but here in chapter 43, he is speaking about the glory of God coming through the east gate. The east gate is open when he begins this vision. The east gate is suddenly closed in 44. Nowhere do we still see any people other than Ezekiel and the angel. The glory of God, of course, is there too. But we don't see any, any other people there. Somehow this gate became closed. It does not say that people closed it. It just says it was open and now it's closed. The closing of the gate is a sign to the people that the glory of God won't leave. It has nothing to do with keeping Messiah or the glory of God in. Closed gate's not going to do that. This is the same gate that Ezekiel saw the glory of God leave through. And this is the one that is, is stopped up. So God is saying, I left through this gate before. I'm not going to leave through it now. And so he, uh, he has it sealed up. So again, Ezekiel does not see this closed. He only sees that, that it, uh, it was open. When he turns back around and sees it again, he notices that it is closed. You go back over here and read this part. Verse 3. As for the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. Now the prince here, there's some speculation this prince is Messiah. It would seem unlikely because he has to offer uh, a sin offering for himself. In Ezekiel 45, jumping ahead, verse 22, And on that day the prince shall prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. If this prince was Messiah, he probably would have to be bringing a sin offering for himself. Hebrews 4.15 says, for we, do, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So that would seem to uh, mean that the prince here, spoken of in Ezekiel, is not Messiah, but someone who's operating on behalf of Messiah, I guess, to watch over the, uh, the temple. The Hebrew word for prince 
is Nasi, not Mashiach, Messiah. It, nor is it Sar, as in Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. So we don't use words that we could have used in Hebrew to describe the Messiah. Now the East Gate is sealed. Muslims still sit in it and pray today. At one point I found some, uh, I found a picture of a bunch of Muslims praying inside of the East Gate. And then when I went to try and put it onto my uh, drive, I couldn't find it. Now the East Gate, if we can go back to, which picture would be, go back to one of the first two pictures, whichever one you want to on, on that. This is the East Gate. This faces toward the Mount of Olives. So if you were to stand in that gate and look straight away, you would see the Mount of Olives. The East Gate is significant for a number of things. The, um, the scapegoat. You remember the offering of the scapegoat? You would have two goats. One goat would be sacrificed in the temple. The other goat was the scapegoat for the people. Now this was done for all the people. And so you would take the scapegoat and you would take him out of the city through the east gate. That was uh, very, very uh, particular in the word of God. He would come through the east gate and then he would be released out into that. So when Jesus comes on Palm Sunday, he comes through the east gate. While the other lambs are being selected, he is selected as the uh, the lamb for for Israel, for all mankind. And of course he would also be the be the scapegoat, as it were. All right. Uh, go on to my last picture we have there. This is an artist's rendition of what Jerusalem may have looked like in the days of Jesus. This, this is the old city. This would be the east gate over here. At least I believe that would be the, the old, but anyway, the east gate would come here. Now here's the thing that would, that puzzled people for a while on the east gate because what would happen is when they would do some of the offerings and they would bring, I believe the scapegoat was one, and they would bring the, the scapegoat out they would take it over this this uh, covered this this walkway that was there, so they would not have to get down into the valley, because the that was significant for a number of different reasons. But they didn't want to have to bring the scapegoat or any of the sacrifice or the priest to go through the the valley, so they had this walkway that was here. But the east gate was the lowest of all the gates. The other gates were higher. The east gate was lower. That allowed them. Well, I should say this, the east gate is the closest gate to the temple. If you wanted to get direct access to go out of the city, the east gate is where you would go. So if you came out the east, the east gate and came down this path to the Mount of Olives, where we would release the scapegoats and do the, perform the, the rituals that they had to do, they had to look back for where the temple was. Because there are certain things they had to do lined up with the Holy of Holies. If the East Gate was where it is now, it could not have been done. Because it would have blocked the view. If it was lower, it would have worked. So more than likely that uh, lower gate 
or even one maybe it might even be one underneath that. Don't know. But uh, I just think it's always amazing that the stuff that was there survives underneath and we just build on top of it and it's all still there and intact and they just uh, go around out there with it. But anyway, that's a, I saw that picture and thought, oh, that might, might help us put some of this together. Now, Jesus descended on the Mount of Olives in the east and entered Jerusalem through what many believe was the east gate in Luke chapter 19, 36 through 37. That was on Palm Sunday. There are, we know that the, the Lord will return to, uh, around the area, even on the Mount of Olives. And so many people in Israel paid good money to be buried on the Mount of Olives. That was your more expensive cemetery. So there was a cemetery. There were some graves that were up there on the Mount of Olives. I don't know how much of the, how much of the land there they did it. But the reason that they would pay the extra money is they believe since Messiah was coming through this east gate and coming down to the Mount of Olives that they would be the first ones resurrected. So you paid a premium if you wanted to be resurrected earlier than everybody else. I think that's uh, not quite understanding Scripture the way that they should. When the people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, they were declaring, we have selected Jesus as our lamb, as our scapegoat, as our one who would take the sin for us. They didn't know that at the time, but that's what they were doing. All right, verse 4. Also, he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. This is because the east gate is closed. So I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes, and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord and all its laws. Mark well who may enter the house and all who go out from the city, no, the sanctuary. Mark means to set your heart upon. That's what's a note in my margin. might be in the margin of your Bible too. Set your heart upon. didn't mean to go over there and put a mark on them. What we're doing is we're setting our heart upon those who may and those who may not enter. So there were ways that he could be able to tell which ones should enter, which ones should not. Verse 6, Now say to the rebellious to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations. So he's speaking to the rebellious, to the house of Israel. He's still calling them rebellious because in Ezekiel's day, they are rebellious. They may not be in this day, but they are right now. They are a rebellious house. Verse 7, When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart, uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to defile it, my house. And when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, then they broke my covenant because of all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. So the Levites were supposed to keep charge of all this stuff. They were supposed to keep the house of God holy, and they failed. They allowed a lot of the uncircumcised to come into the house of God. They allowed a lot of abominations to go on. Idolatry was going on and they even participated in some of it. Thus says the Lord God, 
No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. Now, by foreigner, it doesn't just mean someone who's not of Jewish descent, but someone who uh, does not follow the way of God. If you were of a different uh, race, nationality, whatever, and you came and dedicated yourself to God, became circumcised if you were, if you were a man, then, of course, you could follow through here. But if, you do, if you're not going to submit to the covenant, you didn't get to go in. And the Levites who went far from me, verse 10, when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity. Now, Levites had gone astray. There are some of them who went astray. They went after their idols. Now, in the history of the Levites, uh, Moses was of this tribe. Moses was a Levite. We know that when they came to the mountain, when the law was being delivered, that the Levites were the only ones who didn't follow. My thought is that it's more likely the leadership of of them in that they were teaching their people, had prepared their people, and did not let their people go in to follow this direction. That when the movement was such that let's all rebel and build this calf, the leaders were saying, we will not. I don't know, we don't have anything in the Word of God about this, but I was putting my own thought processes to this and wondering. Moses was a Levite. What are the, what is the probability that Moses had a meeting with just the Levite leaders? He was a Levite. He would have been a leader among them. So, it doesn't seem far-fetched to me for Moses to have met with the Levites. Maybe he had some conversation. Maybe he told them some things that the rest of the people didn't know. Whatever it was, something kept these guys in line because to a man, all the Levites didn't follow, whereas all the other ones did. Very stark difference. Now later on, they, they, they refrain from it here. Later on, they do follow after the way of idolatry. When Israel was, was going after the idols and the temple was involved, they were involved with it. Now, I made this note in my outline. I don't think I had any room in yours, but it's interesting how generations reaped the benefits of the faithfulness of those at the mountain. Because the people at the mountain were faithful, many generations of Levites were able to be priests. Not because they were faithful, but simply because the people at the mountain were faithful. Now we're going to see something else. Because the Levites have fallen into unfaithfulness, many generations are going to reap the benefits of that unfaithfulness and many Levites are going to be barred from certain services as a priest. There's many things that we're, we see that are put on generational curses and generational diseases. and Well, that's just the way you know my family goes and so forth. But the only thing we see in the Bible that seems to have lasting generational uh, outcome is whether or not you taught and you stayed in the ways of God. Abraham was selected because he, God said he will teach his, his children. 
my ways. That's why he was selected. He wasn't selected because he was so much better. He was selected because God said, this one will teach his children my ways. The generations, the, the generations that come after us, they will reap things for the faithfulness that we display. Faithfulness to his word. Faithfulness to his way. Faithfulness to stay out of wrong, the, the, the things that God says, don't go into this idolatry for, for them. Sometimes we have to keep in mind that what we do can have benefits to those that come after us. As we benefit from those who came before. Verse 11. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house and ministers of the house. They shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people. And they shall stand before them to minister to them. Because they minister to them before their idols and cause the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. Therefore I have raised my hand in an oath against them, says the Lord God, that they shall bear their iniquity and they shall not come near me to minister to me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things, nor into the holy, most holy place, but they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Nevertheless, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all it has to be done in it. So what this is saying is, it doesn't matter if you are of the house of Aaron, you will not be a high priest and enter into the, the most holy place. Only those that were descendants of Zadok, because Zadok's descendants were faithful. Now, Zadok was faithful back in the days of David when there was the uh, uh, uprising of Absalom. So, Zadok stayed with David, and uh, I believe it was Ahimelech who had gone to the, Abimelech who went to the way of Absalom. But Zadok stayed with David. And he was rewarded for that faithfulness. The high priest no longer bounced between two. It stayed with the house of Zadok. It must be, it's not listed in here, but I would say it must be that the house of Zadok was all, the only part of the Levites that stayed with God during the, the time of idolatry that he's referring to here. If they did not stay with God, if they did not stay with the, the, the things of God, then the descendants of Zadok would be in the same boat as everybody else. So it must be that God still had them that had not fallen. But all the priestly duties, anything that involves the sacrifices, anything that involves the, the inner court, anything that involves the most holy place, of course that's just the high priest, all that only stayed with those of Zadok is what he is saying here in, in this one. Where do we leave off that? 14. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge in my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. Now we're going to get into some restrictions that come on to the high priest. In the New Testament, we all love the, the idea that we are priests before God. But apparently to be a priest, there are certain restrictions that will come upon. 
And it shall be whenever they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or within the house. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. And they shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. I don't know. I think if you put anything on it, it can cause sweat. But <laughs> that's what it says. Some, of course, will, will do more than, than others. And wool certainly, uh, they didn't have all the different variations of wool we have today. But uh, wool can make you sweat. You put wool on, of course, when you, you want to be warm. The reason that wool is singled out is wool comes off of an animal and therefore can be unclean. Can be uh, soiled, dirty. Linen, it doesn't come in the same way. And so that's why they, they uh, single it out that it can be purified, it can be cleaned up differently than the, the wool. But anyway, linen's okay, wool is not. And you'll have the linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their body. So if you're going to go into the inner court, you did not go into the inner court with just whatever you had on. There are certain clothes that you would put on that you would enter into the inner court. And of course, the Holy of Holies was even more restricted than that, according to the Levitical law. And that was an outfit you just put on, I guess, the, uh, the one time. But these outfits they have, I mean, they got bloody for some of the things they would do. But I guess that was okay. So the first thing, you had to wear linen. I didn't find anything out whether people preferred wool over linen. If this was a, a, a down thing for, for them, oh, I'd rather not be wearing the linen. I don't know. I didn't find anything out about that. Verse 19, when they go out to the outer court, to the outer court, to the people, they shall take off their garments in which they have ministered, leave them in the holy chambers, and put on other garments, and in their holy garments they shall not sanctify the people. This has something to do with the verse of scripture that talks about in the New Testament when Jesus says, how did you get in here without a garment, without a wedding garment? That just because you enter into the presence of God, you better, you better know you don't just go into the presence of God with the same stuff that you wore outside. Just uh, like people might, you know, t- today a uh, uh, reference to this would be if you have, if you've been working outside in the dirt and you come in, don't you like to take some of that stuff off? Clean that, uh, clean that up. And uh, you might even want to wash it before you go and do anything else with it. We were doing some, some things on the outside here this week getting ready for Sunday. And um, some of the clothes I was wearing, just being out there for the, the time, got muddy. So I just uh, put them right to the wash. Didn't even let them walk around the house or anything like that. Just put them right to the wash. Took my shoes off, banged them on outside out because I had mud all into the into the shoes, and let them sit outside to dry some. And after they dried some, I banged them out some more uh, because you don't want to bring all that stuff into the house. This is uh, something similar here. So there are certain clothes that you have. That you would, that you would wear. In this capacity. So they're holy chamber garments. In verse twenty, they shall neither shave their heads nor let their hair grow long. So I would be okay. 
I don't know what would be considered long. When we were going to Ramah, long was touching your shoulder. If a guy's hair touched the shoulder, you got tapped on the on the shoulder by the dean. Cut that hair, boy. <laughs> so he'd come up there and he'd tell you during orientation, if I see your hair long, I'll tap you on the shoulder until you get your hair cut. And he never tapped on my shoulder. But I don't like long hair. I like it. I like it short. So I don't think I had the same style then. I've had the same style for, I don't know, a couple of decades now. But back then I wasn't, it was something different. I don't know what it was. But uh, I like it. I like it short. So as long as I don't shave it, I would be okay. If I was a Levite, as long as I didn't shave it, I would be okay. This doesn't mean that shaved heads are bad or that hair that is long on a guy is, is bad. I can't say that I like it, but... I uh, I don't understand. Sometimes I'm I'm driving on down the road, and uh, with somebody, or my wife might be in the car, and I'll I'll see some some lady runner out there, and running along, and they have the long hair, and they got it all put into a ponytail, and uh, they're running along, and it's going back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth, and I look at that and say, I am so glad I'm a guy. <laughs> Boy, that would irritate me, having hair going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and I would not like it. But there are guys who have super long hair. They play football and they do other things and I don't get it. But if you wanted to be a priest, if you were a priest, I can't say if you wanted to be a priest, if you were a priest, this is what you had to do. If you were one of the sons of Zadok and you're going to be in there with the priestly duties, this is what you needed to do. There's no, there's no, uh, I don't, I don't want that hairstyle. Can I, you can't petition for anything different. It's kind of like going into the military. You go into the military, they shave your head. That's it. There's no, there's no question. Well, can you leave mine a little longer? No. We will cut it to the length that we have decided. And that's it. There is no input. And uh, they pretty much understand that going in, so they don't try and give any input to that. Except for the ladies. Ladies get to have their hair any way they want to when they go into the military. Verse 21. Oh, he also said, but they shall keep their hair well trimmed. I like well-trimmed hair. Verse 21, No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. Now, he didn't say no drinking wine, period. He said no drinking wine when you enter into the inner court. That seems to be what it indicates. <laughs> that you can have uh, you can have some wine anyway. But uh, if you come into the inner court, I don't know if you can't push your wine away while you're in the inner court. I think you ought to hang it up as a Levite. They shall not take as wife a widow or a divorced woman, but take virgins of the descendants of the house of Israel or widows of priests. Now we look at that and we say, oh, that's no big deal. Yeah, until you like somebody who doesn't fit that description. Maybe uh, a priest you knew had a wife. You should enjoy going over and keeping their company. And he died. And you were over there a little bit more trying to help out with some of the things that were going on and a connection was made. And that would be okay. But 
what happens if it's if it's a widow of someone else? They weren't a priest. Now, that's not going to work. And so they, I'm sure that along the way, there are certain priests who wanted to plead their case. My God, I love her. I really like this one. And um, that's just not something you should do. So your best thing to do is not bring wine into the inner court and not spend time developing a relationship with, with someone who was widowed or a divorced woman. Unless she was widowed or one of the priests. Because if you do anything to build up that relationship, it's just going to, it's not going to end well. They may sit back there and say, well, anybody else, they can do, they can marry whoever they want to. You're not anybody else. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. In controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed meetings. They shall hallow my Sabbath. So the purpose here is you need to show people the difference between being holy and and not holy. Now you guys are going to be the epitome of what is holy. So I need you to act different than everybody else. And you need to be a uh, you need to be an example of what a holy uh, person is to God. You can't just live like everybody else. There's got to be certain things that you do that no one else does. Now with the wine part, no one else is going into the inner court. So I don't understand that one. It's like, well, I can't drink wine in there either because I can't go. But there were enough of them here that they had a to live a certain way. Maybe linen wasn't the stylish clothing. Maybe wool was the better, better stylish clothing. But you had, to, you had to demonstrate this. He goes on in verse 25. And they shall not defile themselves by coming near a dead person. Only for father or mother, for son or daughter, for brother or unmarried sister. Huh. Once your sister got married, you can't go to her funeral. You can defile yourself for these others, but uh, not her. So you you could go to these funerals, you could partake of this. This is not talking about touching a dead person. This is called talking about coming near a dead person. If you came near one, then you had to go through a cleansing process. After he's cleansed, they shall count seven days for him. There we got our seven days again. And on that, on the day that he goes to the sanctuary to minister on, in the sanctuary, he must offer his sin offering in the inner court, says the Lord. In case you didn't, didn't see that, seven days, eighth day, sacrifice in the service, new beginning. They shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy. You weren't just supposed to teach them this from the things in the word. You were supposed to teach them this from the way that you lived your life. And he gave them some things they were supposed to do here. Verse 28. It shall be in regard to their inheritance that I am their inheritance. You shall give them no possession in Israel for I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering. Every dedicated thing in Israel shall be theirs. The best of all the first, first fruits of any kind 
And every sacrifice of any kind from all your sacrifices shall be the priest. Also you shall give to the priest the first of your ground meal to cause a blessing to rest on your house. The priest shall not eat anything, bird or beast, that died naturally or was torn by wild beast. If you want to eat meat, someone's got to kill it. If it just died naturally, or if uh, you interrupted a lion after he killed something, you cannot go out there and eat that. So in our our um, I don't know how much we really can, can relate to that. We're not used to going out and killing our food anyway. We're just going out to the grocery store and taking it out of the freezer section or refrigerator section. But they didn't have that there, so they had to go out and, and kill it or somebody else had to go out and kill it and bring it there for them. So as we wind this down, how many beliefs are built around things like the East, the East Gate or the Golden Gate that have no foundation in truth? How many things, like people who have built so much around the Eastern Gate, they, they consider it holy? You have the, the Muslims that have prayer times in there. Every day, I don't think the uh, Jews are allowed in to the East Gate. I think they are, they are blocked off from that. Uh, it may be because of the way they've quartered the, uh, the city. But people believed, still do, that Jesus will be coming through that gate and that he will open it. But he has, this prophecy has nothing to do with that. All you have to do is read the prophecy. And the prophecy will tell you that gate has absolutely nothing to do with this. You didn't have to find out what year it was built. Didn't make any difference about what year it was built, what year it was sealed up. But we can build up a lot of beliefs and treat them as sacred, treat them as holy. But there's no foundation in the Word of God at all. There's no foundation in truth. Just because people believe it strongly does not mean that it's so. We have to go back to the Word of God and make sure, am I doing what the Word of God has to say? Now, the title of priest is well-liked by New Testament saints. We all like, yeah, I'm a priest before God. But do we understand that in the, in the Scriptures, different rules apply to priests and to the rest of the people? Am I willing to live up to a different set of rules? Or do I want to live my life the way everybody else does? There are some Christians who live their life, they get involved in causes and get excited about different things that God's not excited about and is not a cause for God. Are we willing to separate ourselves and do what the Word of God says? These priests were separated. They were separated for the service of the temple. Everything that they did was to be around the service of the temple. The descendants of Zadok, they were involved with the sacrifice, the actual priestly duties. The rest of them were barred from that, but they were to take care of the, of the temple itself. They took care of all the cleaning, of all the getting rid of the blood off the altars and uh, making sure that there's water in there. Whatever has to be done in the temple... These folks did it. They had a focus about that. They had to be about the temple's business. They couldn't be out there wasting time on uh, fixing the wall, uh, paving roads, uh, doing other stuff. They had to be focused on what they were, were given to do. And Christians today don't quite grab hold of Paul's teaching. Uh, 
A good soldier is not mindful of things outside of what his duties are. And we have to make sure that we are mindful for the things of the kingdom of God and stay mindful to that. Oh, there's going to be a whole lot of things that are going to try and distract you. There's going to be a whole lot of people that want to try and pull you off into their causes and to do their thing or to get excited about this thing over here or whatever it might be. But don't, don't fall prey to it. Stay with it. Remember Paul's, Paul's writing. A good soldier. I want to be a good soldier. When I get before God, I want God to be able to say, Steve, you're a good soldier. If I get myself off on, on wrong things, uh, you know, sometimes uh, people that are pastors, teachers, they can start teaching things that really have no basis for changing your life today. But they get excited about it and, and they stay on those particular things. Uh, <clears throat> that's how we got the, <clears throat> excuse me, the doctrine of flags in church. And you wave in certain flags brings in certain parts of the Spirit of God and chases away certain demonic spirits. Yeah, the teaching's out there. And uh, other people, I've told you about this one before, the, the blowing that uh, the horn. That there's huge volumes written on this as to how to blow the horn to get the right, right thing from the Spirit of God that you want. They spend a lot of time on this. This is not stuff that's in the Word of God. But they've dedicated a lot of their, their time to it. We've had other ministers. I mean, some good ones. I can name some good ones to you. They got off on this one. They got off on that ultra grace thing. Well, it's, they took a couple of scriptures and they ran with it, but it's not going in the, the direction that all scripture points to. So we have to make sure that we, we don't get sidetracked by these wrong things. We may like that, but... Uh, and there are, there are people that get, uh, they just, they just like it. They just, uh, prophecy was one pulls people into. You know, I've seen some people, I know some ministers, just really got into the prophecy. Love prophesying. Just, you just meet them, it won't be more than 10 minutes till they have a prophecy for you. Well, that's not necessarily the way it's supposed to go. That's, that's the, that's the passion of that person. And they like the attention that they, they get from it. Stay with the Word. Teach the Word. Learn the Word. Let the Word be the light around the people that you see today. And make, just see yourself. You are a priest. And though it is great to be a priest before God, a priest comes with some restrictions. There are some things that you cannot do. And I can't mess with the things of the world, as Paul put it. A good soldier doesn't get himself all tangled up with the things of the world. He's involved in the things that are with the fight. And that's what you have to do. Well, Father, I thank you that you have called us to be priests and that we are set to be different. We are to show people the difference between what is holy and what is unholy as we participate in those things that are holy. As we participate in those things that are of you, that bless you, that you're interested in. Help us, Father, to always keep in mind that people watch us and that they are learning what is important to God by us showing what's important to us. 
I thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.